Good morning. I missed you guys. Yeah, I know. I've been gone a little bit again, but I'll be back for a while. So that's good. Let's uh, let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us today and your angels, that we might worship you and that our minds might draw closer to you and our hearts might become more like you today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly, The Prophetic uh, Gift, and the lesson title today is Testing the Prophets. And, and I had a question as we, as we start the lesson, what, what is the purpose that God gave something called the gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy throughout the history of the world? What, what was it for? What, to make God known. To make God known. To reveal God. To help help punch through the darkness. You know, it says darkness covered the people, gross darkness to people. So the gift of prophecy is a means of, of focusing light or truth into our minds. Yes? Why was why why did God find it necessary to have prophets? Which is different than the gift of prophecy. Why well, was it necessary to have prophets? Was it? Well, let me spin the question a different way. Is it God's preferred method to communicate to each of you through a prophet? Is that how He prefers to do it? No. no. Then why is it necessary to have prophets? We don't listen. Oh, say that. Say that. We don't listen. We don't listen. Yes. See, wouldn't God prefer to be able to talk to each one of us like he did Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend? Isn't that God's preferred method? And why is it not happening? We don't listen. Yes? I can kind of think of it from the perspective of a parent. Sometimes it's more effective for someone else to tell your child something than for you to try and convey that message to them. And I think sometimes God is in the exact same situation. If he tried to convey something directly to us, it's much easier for him to 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 work with people that he can convince and those people to convince us. Sometimes we're like, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to hear it from you. Well, and you might not think that that's from God. You start questioning, well, is that really from God or not? Where from the prophet, you might be more um, apt to believe it. We'll we'll explore that today, too. Think that through. More likely to believe it coming from a human. (laughs) 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 I I understand your point. I understand your point completely. I don't don't think you're wrong. It's just, think about how disconnected we are from him, that that would be true. Well, I think you would question your own faith, saying, is this from God or not? Not that it wasn't from God, but you would think, well, God talked to me? Would God give me this? <laughs> Maybe it's because we don't know him that well. So that we would know and recognize his voice if he did speak to us. Maybe that's the problem. Well, even the, even the prophets didn't get very good reception throughout history. <laughs> yeah. Some of them didn't, did they? Yeah. They didn't trust that the message was from God. That's why they did the fleeces and the different tests. Are you really from God? Do this. This week's lesson is going to explore the question of the gift of prophecy in modern times. And particularly with our church, the question of Ellen White. Now, somebody read the last paragraph in Sabbath's lesson for us. 
Mrs. White never called herself a prophetess. The church has recognized her as such. In 1905, she wrote, quote, Others have called me a prophetess, but I have never assumed that title. I have not felt that it was my duty to designate myself. To thus designate myself? Yes, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Do you find it significant that Ellen White never made the claim that she was a prophet, that others have made that claim in her behalf? Yes. Part of this quote, or some other quote, says, she says her role is much larger than a prophet. See, is it important that we elevate her in that way? I knew that if I said that she never proclaimed the prophet, I knew that it would be important that we would elevate her beyond that. If she couldn't be a prophet, she had to be something more. When Paul wrote in the New Testament that we are not followers, uh, you know, he, he said, you're not followers of Apollos, you're not followers of Peter, you're not followers of Paul, we're followers of? Christ. Are we followers of Ellen White? Should be. Is it important to elevate Ellen White to the central focus of the Advent message? No. Do you ever find that that sometimes seems to be the, the, the test of fellowship? Yes. Should it be? No. No. Whether you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Does the Bible teach that spiritual things are spiritually discerned? Yes. yes. And, and does that, what does that mean to you when you hear that? Holy Spirit has to be involved. Can we, with our sin-darkened, carnal minds, understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit's involvement? Our carnal minds alone, can we? No. Is that true just for prophets, or is that true for everybody? So would that mean, then, that whoever writes the truth about God, whomever they are, is only able to do so because the Holy Spirit has enlightened their mind? Yes. True or false? No matter who it is that's writing, if they write truth about God that's a harmony with Scripture, the only way they're able to do it is the Holy Spirit has enlightened their mind. They can't do it with their carnal mind. True or false? True. I see some confused looks. If Billy Graham speaks or writes a truth about God, if, he, if to the degree that he speaks the truth, where did he get the truth? No. Max Licato? How about our pastor over here? If he speaks the truth and exhorts the truth from God's Word, who enabled him to be able to do that? His carnal mind by himself, or was the Holy Spirit involved? The devil, of course, mixes truth with error. And if you mix truth with error, are you still presenting the truth? No. no. But you're still presenting partial, or a lot of the truths, so when you start parsing Max Lucado or your own pastor saying, well, this part was inspired, but eh, I'm not so sure about this part... But if he speaks not according to the truth, there's no light in him. Yeah. Speaks not according to the truth, there's no light in him. So the question that I've, I've put here is, to the degree that they speak the truth, are they speaking the truth because they've come to it on their own accord, with their own mind, or does the Holy Spirit have to be involved in that process? And any prophet, even the apostles uh, that wrote the scriptures, did any of them have 100% understanding of the truth? No. no. So is anybody, prophetic or otherwise, take Christ out of the picture for this question, going to be able to present a 100% version of the truth? Or will their understanding be growing in time? Truth is progressive. Yeah. So so I I say that because people who are walking with the Lord and presenting the truth that the Holy Spirit reveals to them may not have every fact right at this point in their journey, but they're still journeying correctly with the Lord, aren't they? Martin Luther, there's an example. Okay, So does that mean if somebody doesn't have every 
point right now that the Holy Spirit is not working with them. No. 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 And it's it's up to us to discern truth from error because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It's it's our job to harmony. Let me ask you this question: If somebody presents the truth and the truth is spoken by a prophet, and we're and we're convinced that it is coming from a, a genuine prophet, is that truth any purer than the same truth spoken by a preacher or a teacher or a lay leader? No. Pure no. I, I understand the point of the question. Do we, though, sometimes elevate the words of a prophet just because they're coming from a prophet? Hmm. The only truly important question is, is the person speaking truth? That's the key question, isn't it? Now, 1 Kings thirteen eighteen. Maybe we should look at that because you might think, well, if they're a prophet, they always speak truth. 1 Kings 13, 18. We'll start a little bit before that. Well, let me just lay, lay the groundwork. A young prophet got a message from the Lord to go tell King Jeroboam uh, a message from the Lord. And it was to go directly there and then leave and go a different way. And he wasn't st- supposed to stop, eat, drink on the way. And then, uh, after this young prophet gives the message the Lord had for the king, uh, the, the sons of an old prophet were there, return home and tell the old prophet what had happened. The old prophet has the sons uh, saddle up his donkey, and he gets on his donkey and catches up to the young prophet and says the following, verse 18. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord... Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Now look, notice the parenthetical statement following. But he was lying to him. But the man of God returned with him and ate and drank at his house. Now notice this, very interesting. If you stop here, many people go, well, that's okay, because that would be a false prophet. See, false prophets lie, right? This is, a, this is not one of God's prophets if he's lying to him. This would be a false prophet. But if you keep reading through the text, coming down, it says, While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And go on and so forth and so on. This was the word of the Lord coming through this. Was this a, was this a false prophet? Not at that moment. Or is this one of God's prophets? Why is this story important for us to recognize? Should you surrender your thinking to a prophet? No. They're just humans. If God has given you instruction for your life, should you allow a prophet come to tell you that you need to do something different than what God has instructed you? Or are we responsible to God? Hmm. It's just a thought. I see some squirms and uncomfortable looks. It's the word. I didn't make that up. Um, Does it give a motivation for why the old prophet lied? It doesn't. It just said he did. Yeah. It just said he did. That's a whole other discussion on what was going on in the old prophet's heart. Yes. I think that he was testing that younger prophet's contract. Whether he... In other words, sometimes you have to write your name and, and 
go on ten pages of documents like a Philadelphia lawyer would, you know. But other times you give your word that these are the conditions under which you'll do something, and he was going to find out whether he was going to keep his word. God was testing the young prophet to see if he could use him in the future. If he failed, he died. That's one interpretation. Yes? I think with looking at Nathan and David, and, you know, Nathan telling him that, you know, it was, he was going to build the temple, Nathan was making, giving that information based on everything he knew, based on his assessment of the situation, said, yeah, that's a good deal. You go ahead and do that. I think you're the man for it. And then God came and corrected that. Nathan had to go back and say, sorry. I'm so glad you brought that up because it asks a whole other question. If you get a message from a prophet, and then later that uh, you get a message from that prophet or another prophet that contradicts the message of the first prophet, because one of the tests are that the prophetic messages don't contradict. Isn't that one of the tests? It's in harmony with previous inspired revelation. That's the, the new revelation is in harmony with old revelation, right? From David's perspective, when David asked the prophet, should I build the temple? The prophet said, yes. From David's perspective, what did it look like? It looked like. But what about when Abraham, did Abraham get instruction from God to sacrifice his son? Did he later get instruction not to? Should he said, look, it has to be in harmony with previous revelation. (laughs) Did Samuel give instruction from God that they were not to have kings? Did Samuel give instruction from God to anoint their kings? Should they said, no, it has to be in harmony with previous revelation. Well, they should have. It might have been a better idea. Yeah. Does that mean that Samuel should have been tossed out as a false prophet? You've just crossed the line, Samuel. You've given us. A, you, we can't trust you anymore, Samuel, because you've given us a different message than you gave us before. Your your message has changed. So God changed. Does God ever ever change his mind on yes, things? Absolutely. Did the children of Israel? Meat versus manna. There you go. Meat versus manna. God gave him manna. They begged for meat. Did God give in to their request? Yeah. Did he want him to have it? Never. No. He gave in. The Bible says God does not change. Oh, no, it doesn't. It does not say that. Change less? What's no. The word? It says, because I don't change my character, I'm not going to destroy you. It says, I change not. His character changes not. But... Love changes its interventions. A loving parent will spank a child in love if the circumstances are right. Will cuddle that child in love if the circumstances are right. Love doesn't change. Love is constant. But depending on the the various changes of the, the child, the behavior of that parent will change toward the child, always motivated from love. So God's love doesn't change, but the way he behaves in places seems to change, not because he is changing his nature, but because the need of the people is changing constantly. Yes? Aren't there a lot of the things, maybe all or most of the things that he says are conditional, uh, based on if you will do this or this or this, then I will react in this way. Don't we have a big part in the way he reacts then? God is a constant. We are inconsistent. God is constantly loving, constantly forgiving, constantly gracious, constantly nurturing, constantly uh, reaching out to heal. 
We are inconsistent, unreliable, unpredictable, and therefore, as we interact with this constant God, he is constantly reaching out in new ways to minister his constant love, grace, and healing to us. And so for us in our darkened minds, it appears that he is doing different things. He's not. He's not. It depends on the maturity level of the person he's dealing with. A three-year-old child, why do they brush their teeth? Because there's a rule. That's what three-year-olds do. They obey the rules. And, and why do they obey the rules when they're three? Fear of punishment. Fear of punishment. Why, does, why, why did most of you in this room brush your teeth? Because mom's got a rule and she's going to punish you if you don't? No. The reason at three, is the reason at three truly different than the reason at 20? Or is it just the maturity level of the person? And their understanding of why. Wasn't the reason to brush your teeth at three the same reason to brush them at 20? If you don't, they'll rot? But the three-year-old couldn't understand. It appears different. It appears, well, three, mom was, mom was mean. She was tough back then. She's gotten a lot, lot softer as I've gotten older. No, she hasn't. <laughs> you see, that's, that's, that's how we sometimes view things with God. And so when we look at these various things, the point is, each one of us, and I think the take-home point of this, this idea with the prophets and the messages that come from prophets is that each one of us has to be fully persuaded in our own mind, as it says in Romans. We have to think it through for ourselves. Now, somebody read the second paragraph in Sunday's lesson. During her 70-year ministry, Ellen White received an estimated 2,000 visions and prophetic dreams. Quote, at times I am carried far ahead into the future and shown what is to take place. Then again, I am shown things as they have occurred in the past. After I come out of vision, I do not at once remember all the things I have seen, and the matter is not so clear before me until I write. Then the scene rises before me as it was presented in vision, and I can write with freedom. I wanted to read this section and talk about it because many of you may not know, but there has been neurological analysis by, and actually printed in the uh, Journal of Neurology in 1981, uh, the conclusion that Ellen White had temporal lobe epilepsy. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Temporal lobe epilepsy is a form of a seizure disorder. And I wanted to walk you through what that looks like and, and let you do an analysis of, of that. But temporal lobe epilepsy often occurs in the aftermath of a head injury. Did Ellen White have a head injury? Yes. Yes, in the third grade, she had a severe head injury. She was knocked unconscious for a brief period of time. Uh, with temporal lobe epilepsy, people have alterations of consciousness. They will stare off into space. They will have some stereotypic movements where they, their, their arms and limbs can become very rigid and they can't be moved. They will posture in certain ways. They'll have complete unawareness of their surroundings, and you can inflict all types of pain on them. You could even cut a finger off if you wanted, and they wouldn't react. They're unaware, and they don't react to any type of pain. Um, they have hallucinations of various kinds, auditory, visual hallucinations where they hear and see things. When they're not in the seizure, in between the seizures, they have excessive religious preoccupation, and they tend to have a, a condition called hypergraphia. Hypergraphia is excessive writing, where they write profusely volumes and volumes and volumes of writing. There's often aura associated with with temporal lobe epilepsy, where they'll have a warm feeling or, or uh, a, a, uh, a sense where their whole body is, is being, uh, uh, you know, a little electrical energy coming through it or something, an aura that, that comes just before the, the seizure. They typically last, in most patients, no more than three minutes. Um, the breathing can be extremely shallow, and for brief periods of time, they may not breathe at all, um, but never more than a minute. 
And um, afterwards, there's several minutes of confusion where they take a while to reorient themselves to their surroundings after the seizure ends. Um, this is the symptoms of a temporal lobe epilepsy. Before I go on, I just want to know your thoughts about that. Has anybody heard of it before? A few people. Yeah. Does it trouble you? No. As you hear these symptoms? Does that hypergraphia make sense? See, excellent. See, asking questions. Beautiful. Does the hypergraphia make sense? Going on. Uh, why Ellen White did not have temporal lobe epilepsy? At least her writings were not a result of it. Um, symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy vary widely from patient to patient. But within each individual patient, the, the symptoms they have are very, very few, and they're the same recurrent symptoms. So every time they go into seizure, they have the same event happening again and again. So if in seizure they hear a particular piece of music being played or they have a particular hallucination, it's that same experience again and again every time they have a seizure. Um, temporal lobe epilepsy does not increase. In fact, no seizure disorder increases your IQ, creativity, insight, wisdom. What happens during a seizure is certain neural circuits are firing and those same neural circuits fire. And so only thing that can happen in a seizure is that you can regenerate or reactivate memories, information, knowledge already stored in your, in your mind. You don't get new information, new insights, new wisdom that wasn't previously in your mind before. It can only activate stuff that was there. The movements of temporal lip epilepsy are usually purposeless and repetitive, like lip smacking or uh, a hand that goes like this, just jerking back and forth, repetitive. And, and then the hypergraphia, the, the writing of temporal lip epilepsy is not creative, but repetitive and meaningless, with a verse being written over and over and over thousands of times. I had a patient with temporal lobe epilepsy who had journals, and her journals uh, wandered and meandered through meaningless nonsense, not even forming sentences, just words incoherently put together um, through pages and pages and reams and reams of that type of stuff. So that's what temporal lobe epilepsy actually looks like. You notice when I gave the symptoms without actually specifying, you know, an, an, uh, it could give the illusion maybe that that's what was going on. But the writings of Ellen White, if you've ever read any of them, are clear organized, insightful, consistent with scripture, and therefore don't meet the criteria of someone with temporal lobe epilepsy. But, let's move, move on. We're going to get some of those and let you test those in a minute. So the testing no breathing lasted a lot longer than one minute. That was the next thing. The physical phenomenon supposedly reported with Ellen White's visions. We have accounts of multiple people, both people who were uh, confident in her and people who were critics of her, that evaluated that she didn't breathe for over an hour without having cyanosis, without having uh, her color change. And they would actually put fingers and pinch the nose closed and hold the, the mouth shut, and, and, and it didn't, didn't seem to matter. She had supernatural strength, and she was unaware of her surroundings. Now, these supernatural phenomena, if we just accept they were true, they actually happened, are the, are the supernatural phenomena that were manifested uh, in her life, are they good reasons to believe what she wrote? No. no. Why? Because that can all be counterfeited. Excellent. Excellent. If, if it happened, so what? Doesn't prove anything she wrote was true. Does it? No. And, and don't get caught up in that. See, that type of stuff. And I remember when I was young and read about that, I was like, ooh, that's so cool. And, then, and, then, and this is how the devil deceives. Look what happens in some of the religions of the world how there are supernatural signs and wonders. As soon as you see something that you can't explain that's supernatural, the mind gets turned off and you just said, wow, this must be something I should listen to. Mm -hmm. 
It's very infatuating. No. Miracles can be counterfeited. Um, when Moses threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent, Jannies and Jambres came out. And what did they do? Same thing. They counterfeited the miracle. Okay? Miracles can be counterfeited. What is it that really matters? The truth. And how do you know what's true? Well, my pastor told me. Well, I check with the Pope. God said it, I believe it. That's it. Well, it's in the it's in the testimonies. It must be true. Well, Monday's lesson talks about agreement with the Bible. The test of a true prophet is that the writing is always in agreement with the Bible. Before we go on, do you have any questions you've ever had? Anything you've ever read in the writings of Ellen White that you questioned or that might not agree with the Bible? Or things she wrote you couldn't prove one way or the other. I mean, it's not even addressed in the Bible, so you wouldn't know. Yes. After last week's lesson, there was a, a discussion of um, the interpretation of Daniel and the 2300 days and whatnot, and how it compares with some of the other interpretations that were brought up. And how that, um, you know, her description of the areas of where, where Christ went into the most holy place in. 1844 is apparently contradicted by Hebrews, and I, I think there's there's a lot of discussion on various websites and whatnot about how this clearly proves that what she taught is wrong. Interesting. Does Hebrews actually contradict? If we accept, let's just take for a moment that we accept this idea that there was a holy place and a most holy place and there's a building in heaven, if we accept that whole idea, and it's not actually metaphorical of something much more profound than a building, um, but if we accept that idea, if Paul wrote in Hebrews, which he did, that Christ went and sat at the right hand of the Father, and 1,800 years later, some Christian author writes, well, he first went into the holy place, and it wasn't until 1844 that he went into the most holy place next to the Father. Does that necessarily mean it's a contradiction? Why not? Well, in Paul's mind, in Paul's mind, what does his writings clearly say was about to happen? What was he telling everybody? What's about to happen? Christ is coming again. We live in the, which days? Last days. Now, if Paul's the prophet understood we live in the last days, and he understood the scenario of events the same way, say, Ellen White did, where would he have Christ right before he came? In the holy place or the most holy place? Okay, so Paul was writing in his mind, Christ is about to come, and before he comes, he's going to be right at the right hand of the Father. So I don't have a problem with the fact that you see an apparent contradiction there, because that's what Paul believed was about to happen. Did, did Paul write Hebrews? Or is it generally accepted? Most people believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, yes. Yes. Continuing on that same thought, though, uh, there's, there's those who say, well, you're describing Paul's writings as if he thought. What did this, you know, and they have a different appearance of how Scripture was given. When it comes to time, prophets have always had the eminence of the second coming right then. All the prophets, 
They've never actually been given clear insight on the length of time before them. That's true of all of them, isn't it? Read all their writings. It's eminent. He's about to come. We're in the last days. John wrote that. Peter wrote that. Paul wrote that. Luke wrote that. I mean, we're all in the last days. This is it. That's the shortness of time has always been a prophetic view. So I don't think that that actually in any way undermines our confidence in what they wrote. But we should then think through ourselves and say, okay, but they weren't actually living in the last days. And it's interesting that Paul said, because, you know, sometimes you get an insight that they didn't fully put the pieces together themselves. And isn't that true? Because Paul wrote in Thessalonians, some say that Christ has already come. But we know that the end is not going to come until the man of sin arises, that man of perdition, who's going to set himself up against everything that God stands for, set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That is all going to come first. So Paul had some insight that there was this opposition that was going to arise first, this antichrist power, didn't he? Yes. Yet he still talked about the eminence of Christ coming now. Very interesting. And the stoning of Stephen, and Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of God. That's right. That's right. See, I, I think that actually that we have a lot of movement to do away from concrete, the concrete cookie-cutter um, in cradle roll and in the little children's divisions do you remember having the sandbox mm-hmm. and in the sandbox you would have little stick figures and little things to try to teach the children the lessons remember that at some point do you want the kids to grow up and leave the sandbox and connect that those things that were happening in the sandbox were only little teaching tools to help them understand the reality of the world and the universe itself or would you want them to, to believe that what the sandbox is the universe? Wouldn't you want them to leave the sandbox? To leave the, the, the concrete little teaching tool? We as a people, we as a church, we have a, a Christian community have failed in many ways to do that. We have stayed stuck in symbolic teaching tools, kicking a very literal, concrete application rather than seeing the deeper meaning that is clearly in the scriptures of what these things mean. We're still brushing our teeth because there's a rule. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And when it comes to the sanctuary message, that's one of those places that we have not grown. Truth is unfolding in all areas of life. How many want to go to a doctor who's practicing medicine like they did in 1890? Anybody? Or a dentist who's practicing dentistry like they did in 1890? What you do is just get everything pulled. Okay. Isn't that right? Okay. Or any field. Carpentry. Whatever it might be, whatever it might be, pick the field. You want to go to somebody professing and practicing like it was 100 years ago. Our theology, when it comes to theology, it's somehow virtuous not to grow. It's somehow virtuous hold to the, to the old landmarks, the way truth was understood generations ago. Well, in Christ's day, he came, and the leaders held to the old landmarks of Moses. The old landmarks. They wouldn't evolve their understanding to see that the embodiment of their entire system, that building that they held, that old that temple that they thought was so important, those animals that they were sacrificing, that whole system pointed to who? Christ. But they wouldn't get away from the teaching tool. They held concretely to the old landmarks, and they would not allow the truth, new truth, to unfold in their minds. And therefore they lost the truth that they had. We're in danger of the same thing today. 
and not allowing the truth to unfold with its ultimate meaning, preparing a people to meet Christ, preparing the bride to be ready. Same process is going on. Ken? Isn't it true that today, mainstream Christianity uh, largely views the coming of Christ literally as near? I think that's a pretty common belief, yes. Well, now, it seems to me that back when our church began, or at least the founders of our church started out there preaching and so forth, an awful lot of the mainstream churches believed, practically speaking, that Jesus came to individuals in a symbolic sense. And all this business of Jesus is coming again, very, very soon and all that sort of thing, was very irritating to them. And, and they said, why don't you just leave this alone, you know, and, and just talk about the love of Jesus. Does that follow your track? I mean, what you're, what you're saying? And well, I, I think the point is that, that where we find ourselves today, we need to take whatever truths that we have understood from the past and see how God is unfolding them for this generation. Rather than simply saying, well, we've got the right day of week to worship on, and we know that we should pay our tithe, and we've got the right foods to eat, and okay, we're settled in. Settled in, but you're not growing. There's no growth. Truth is unfolding. Do you understand? Even in eternity future, there will never come a time when you won't be growing in the truth. Your understanding will be deepening through all eternity. Because God is infinite. We're finite. If we ever come to the point we can't learn any more truth, no. if that would ever happen, well, we would either be dead or we'd be God. And I don't think we're going to be God. So we never want to come to the point we stop learning truth because we don't want to be dead, do we? <laughs> so we always want to be learning. Yes. Why are we as a church, as a people, so afraid of this, this concept that you're giving why are we hanging on so tightly to those old theories? Because we built a sense of comfort in, uh, in a system rather than in a knowledge of God himself. We have a sense of comfort in a structure rather than in a person. See, relationships grow over time, don't they? The way of saying that is we really don't want to be in a relationship or we don't know how. So we're not going to pursue it because we don't want to be thinking about it. We're so thinking about so many other things, we don't have time to get to know God better. And so we're stuck where we're at. Let me read a couple of things uh, from Ellen White's writings and see what you think about her perspective and, and compare it with scriptures. This is out of uh, Faith I Live by page 295. The Lord designs to warn you, to reprove you, to counsel through the testimonies, testimonies, which she uses the word the testimonies, that's, that's her writings, and to impress your minds with the importance of the truth of his word. The written testimonies are not to give new light, but to impress vividly upon the heart the truths of inspiration already revealed. Man's duty to God and his fellow man has been distinctly specified in God's word, yet but few of you are obedient to the light given. Additional truth is not brought out, but God has through the testimonies simplified the great truths already given and in his own chosen way brought them before the people to awaken and impress the mind with them that, it, that all may be left without excuse. What is she saying here is the purpose for her writings? Where is she pointing us? Awesome. To the Bible. To bring us new truths out of the Bible? No. And why was, she, why was her writings necessary? Because we were so hard-headed and so dull and so dim-witted, God had to dumb it down for us. 
That's basically what she's saying, isn't it? Yeah. It was basically a children's Bible commentary is her writings. A child's Bible commentary. That's all. To put us back in touch with the Bible. But she also wrote this out of Faith and Works, page 77. You must bring your creed to the Bible and the light of the Bible define your creed and show where it comes short and where the difficulty is. The Bible is to be your standard. The living oracles of Jehovah are to be your guide. And this is one of the things I, I find valuable about her compared to other people who may have claimed recent times having inspired messages. Most of these other people from these other organizations uh, claim they're here to correct the Bible. They're here to give their new light on the Bible, to help you understand uh, where the Bible had made mistakes. Never, never from her writings will you find that. And then listen to this out of Faith I Live by, page 296. Let the testimonies be judged by their fruits. What is the spirit of their teaching? What has been the result of their influence? All who desire to do so can acquaint themselves with the fruits of these visions. This work is of God or it is not. God does, not in partnership, God does nothing in partnership with Satan. My work bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in the matter. The testimonies are of the Spirit of God or, of the, or they're of the devil. What do you think about that? What do you notice about her attitude, though? What's the take-home message of that statement? Think for yourself. <laughs> Isn't that the message? Think for yourself. Examine the evidence. Come to your own conclusion. Don't believe because someone else says so. Don't believe because of supernatural signs. Do you like that approach? Yeah. She's saying, don't believe because I'm, I'm telling you. Don't believe because I had a vision. Don't believe because I had a dream. Don't believe because I didn't breathe for an hour. Don't believe because of these things. Examine it. Test it. Come to your own conclusion. Don't let somebody else tell you you should believe. Yes. I, I can't remember if it was you or Ty at the Good News Tour. You, got, you guys talked about the doctrines. Ellen White talked about all of our doctrines were not isolated points. But they all were supposed to lead back to the character of God and to reflect back to the character of God and His love. Um, and I think a lot of times we get we get kind of uh, focused and obsessed with the isolated points. You're exactly right. And not what the point of all that is. Like a diamond, I think you might have used that. That was that was that was actually tie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But let's look at something maybe we can test. I'm going to read you something, get your reaction to this. This uh, I think you might find fascinating. This is out of Ministry of Healing, page 371 and 372. And listen to this and see what you think. What the parents are, that to a great extent the children will be. The physical condition of the parents, their dispositions and appetites, their mental and moral tendencies, are to a greater or lesser degree reproduced in their children. The nobler the aims, the higher the mental and spiritual endowments, and the better developed the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give to their children. In cultivating that which is best in themselves, parents are exerting an influence to mold society and to uplift future generations. Through the indulgence of appetite and passion, their energies are wasted and millions are ruined for this world and for the world to come. Parents should remember that their children must encounter these temptations. Even before the birth of the child, the preparation should begin that will enable it to fight successfully the battle against evil. Especially does responsibility rest on the mother. She, by whose lifeblood the child is nourished and its physical frame built up, imparts to it also mental and spiritual influences that tend to the shaping of mind and character. What do you think about that? This was written in 1905. 1905. Well, for those who get our notes, I've attached two scientific articles that have just come out. 
that document now, very fascinating, it's been my theory for some time, we've now got the evidence, that the behaviors you engage in in your life right now, the things you actually do, the, the, the habits that you build in your life, cause gene expression changes in the genes that you have. Methyl groups attach. See, we, you have your genes, but the genes you have are not the ends of the story. It depends on how those genes are expressed, whether the gene is turned on, partially turned on, turned off, how it's, what proteins it's producing, how frequently it produces those proteins, and so on and so forth, throughout the millions of processes going on every day in our body. How you live your life changes how your genes are turned on and how your genes are turned off. And those changes are passed along in your eggs and sperm. So when you have children, they get the current genetics expressed the way they are currently expressed in your life. So if you make changes for the good, you change gene expression and you pass on a better gene expression to your kids, giving them advantages. If you indulge in certain behaviors, addictions of various kinds and destructive behaviors, you turn on different genes and you pass on to your kids genes that make them more vulnerable to those things in the future, gene expressions that make it more vulnerable. This was written in 1905. Science just this last couple of years, after 2000, has documented this is happening. Epigenetics, methyl, methyl groups attaching to the histones in the DNA region that codes the various proteins, altering the way our genes are expressed based on the behaviors that we engage in. If you're a worrier and you foster your worry and you develop a worrying, chronic, fearful attitude and hold up false ideas and false beliefs, you will change gene expression in your brain that will activate the fear pathways uh, that, that will be passed on to your kids and your kids will have a more fearful disposition. What do you think about this? Now, the part about the mother is having a, a greater responsibility because what I've just talked about is true for both men and women. But the mothers, what they eat during pregnancy. There was a study done, looked at children who were born to women during 1944-1945, the Nazi occupation of Holland. And uh, during that period of time, the average daily diet of these pregnant women was about 500 calories a day. So they were very, very restricted in their caloric intake. They looked at these children, compared the gene expression in these kids with their siblings of the same parents who were born at different times of plenty. And they discovered that the genes that code for things like energy storage, metabolism, insulin sensitivity, and so forth, were altered in the kids who were carried through pregnancy during the times of famine, such that those kids had higher rates of obesity, diabetes, and metabolic problems. Same genes in the kids, but they were differently, they were expressed in such a different way that they were much more prone to illness and disease of a metabolic nature. Isn't that fascinating? Why we should be healthy. Why we should watch and guard what we do. It changes the genes in us. What we watch, the video games we play, changes gene expression. Yes? I think the good news about that is it, it can be overwhelming, and it particularly can be overwhelming if you're a lot young participating in a family. But... I think the good news about it is Dean Ernest just, uh, I believe it was, came out last year, dealing particularly with prostate cancer in men, but changed their lifestyle, and in the period of three months, 
change the expression of over 450 genes. The good news is God does not leave us helpless and hopeless. We live in a sinful world. But we can impact that now. I can impact that now in my life. The study you're referring to was done in San Diego. Uh, men with prostate cancer took biopsy of the cells, looked at the gene expression, put them on a vegan diet for 12 weeks. 12 weeks, three months. And then they biopsy the same uh, cancer cells in the prostate again, re-examine the gene expression, and I think the report was over 30 genes had changed expression, and, the, and, and in this particular way, genes that were cancer-inducing had been turned off. Genes that were cancer-suppressing had been turned on from a vegan diet change, and that was the only thing across the, ho- the whole uh, population that was studied. The things we do change the genes and how they're expressed in our body. And then those things could be passed along. So I, I affirm what you're saying, that we have choices that we can make to put ourselves in harmony with God's principles and plans. And there are natural benefits that will come to us without trying if we simply do, basically put ourselves in harmony with the design God built us to run on. Does that make sense? So back to the question here, though. How did she know that in 1905? Was she a good guesser? <laughs> She also wrote in the 18, 1880s, I think, 18, 1870s, uh, about the damaging of tobacco use. At the time when it was standard medical practice for doctors to s- prescribe cigar smoke for emphysema and lung disease. Okay, Really, if you had lung disease in the 1880s and the 1870s, you would get, and maybe 1890s even, you went to a doctor, they would prescribe that you start smoking cigars to help your lungs. She wrote about it being a toxin and a poison and that you should stay away from it. How did she know that? Even more interesting to me than that, she, uh, two, two more things. She wrote about the life-destroying effects of meat eating. Well, you understand, it was all the way into the 1970s that in this society, science in the scientific journals promoted meat as the healthy thing and the, the, the diet of the world. We were trying to figure out how we could take a Western diet, meat and potato diet, to the rest of the world, the third world, to get them healthy. It wasn't until after like the 1970s that we've actually documented the meat-eating diet increases all the risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, obesity, uh, stroke. All these things are worsened by meat-eating diet. And one even I find even more fascinating, she used these words in her writing that she warned of, quote, cancerous germs, unquote. Germs that cause cancer. Well, it wasn't until 1980s that we discovered that HPV, human papillomavirus, causes cervical cancer. A germ, a virus that causes cancer. How did she know that? Knew who to copy. Knew who to copy. Yes. <laughs> Russell. I love how this dovetails with the words of Moses when he tells the children of Israel, you know, the sins will be manifest to the third and fourth generation. That's exactly right. I'm trying to tell us that this, the, the, the designer and creator of our bodies is telling the children of Israel, this is what will happen. It's not that I'm going to punish you for this sin. It's, it's a result of, it's a consequence of behaviors and choices. We were designed in, with the ability to create beings in our image. The acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. Isn't that right? And now we have some science to understand mechanistically how this incredible design that God built, the human body, does that. Phenomenal stuff. Phenomenal stuff. So, um, when we talk about tests of a prophet, what does the tests, the various tests of a prophet apply to? Does it apply to everything 
a prophet says and does. I don't think so. Well, when Nathan came and told the, the idea that David used to build the temple, he came back and changed his mind. Should his first statement be a test of a prophet? How about Paul when he wrote in the New Testament? Did he ever write? Uh, you know, I have no direction on the Lord from this, but as one who is wise, I give you this instruction. Should we put those words where he said, I don't have an instruction from the Lord to the test of the prophet? Should we, should we do that? No. So, how about Peter? When Peter, by his behavior, said we shouldn't associate with Gentiles. Should we put that to the test of the prophet and say, well, he obviously doesn't meet the test because his behavior is not consistent with the gracious incorporation that we are all one in Jesus Christ. There is no male or female, Jew or Greek, we're all one, and his behavior doesn't show he's not meeting the test. Yes? Also, we, we you know, in one of the lessons this week, it was talking about by their fruits, and we sometimes apply that to the followers. What effect does the teachings have on the followers? If, if you apply that, you go back to where Christ was walking through a village, and his followers said, do you want me to bring fire down on the, on the village? <laughs> you know? So you can't always look at the followers and say, oh, this is what is um, produced by that. Yeah, and I've actually had a lot of patients tell me that they don't go to church anymore because they can't stand all the hypocrites in church. And I say, well, when you get really, really sick, do you avoid the hospital because you can't stand all the sick people at the hospital? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is the church for? It's for those who are spiritually sick, right? I mean, you're going to find sick people at church, uh, just like you find sick people. The, the sick of the sick are usually at the hospital. But you hopefully also find a few good doctors and nurses and healthcare providers at the hospital, too. And hopefully the hospital is not run by the sick. <laughs> if that's the case, then you need to find a different hospital. So if you've got a church that's being run by the, the sick of the sick, then, uh, then maybe you need to find somebody who actually has a little bit of a remedy to provide. So... Yeah, but that's a very good point. Very good point. Well, getting back to your, your question, Sabbath's memory verse says, Do not despise prophecy. It says, Test all things and hold to fast to what is good. And the impl- implication is you hold to what is good and you reject what is not. Exactly. Because in this world we live in, ever since the fall, the wheat has always been growing up with the tares. Ever since the fall. There has never been, other than in the life of Jesus, purity on this planet. Isn't that right? And, you, and we've gone through the list before. All the people, all the famed people of God in the Bible had serious problems. David, we shouldn't read the Psalms. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Why should we read the Psalms? We should get rid of that. He's not a prophet. Prophets don't, don't, don't commit flander and that kind of stuff, do they? In the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, well, they're gone. I mean, you know about... Solomon's problems, right? I mean, go, go, you go through the Bible. Go through your list. Pretty soon we don't have a Bible if we don't allow for the fact that we are all sick, suffering from the same disease that we inherited from Adam and Eve. We didn't choose it. When did any of you choose to be born a sinner? You didn't have a choice. Don't feel bad about the fact you've got this problem. The only thing you should ever feel bad about is if you reject the remedy. That's the only thing. Our only choice is not whether we're sick dead in our trespass and sins. We were born that way, born terminal. But there's a remedy that will cure us. And that's our choice. Accept the remedy 
And then once you accept the remedy and it starts working in your heart, there's a transformation that comes. And you, you want to share that remedy with other people. Hey, man, I found something that fixes the heart. Frees from fear. Gets rid of the misery. I want to share it with you. Somebody read the second paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. The fulfillment of most prophecies' exceptions are the end-time prophecies of Daniel and Revelation is dependent on the actions and attitudes of the people concerned. Jonah made the clear-cut statement given to him from God that in 40 days Nineveh would be overturned. Yet it never happened. Was Jonah a false prophet? Of course not. Instead, the prophecy was conditional. Its fulfillment depended on how the people responded to the message God had given them. And, and I think we're all pretty familiar with the idea of conditional prophecy. But as I was reading this, you know, an idea struck me. I, maybe God was, was really had a different agenda in mind with Nineveh. And maybe there was a way that his prophecy was fulfilled. I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. So I, I went and got the various dictionaries out and looked up the word. But, but the word overturned struck me. You can, it can mean the physical overturning and destruction. But what does repentance mean? Isn't repentance having your heart overturned? And so I thought, I wonder if this word that's translated overturned has a double meaning like in English, in the Hebrew. And so I went and read, and here's the, from the, the dictionary of biblical languages, the word is hapak. The first definition is, is overthrow, to cause ruin as in the extinction, as in extension of flipping over an object. Cause ruin as an extension of flipping over an object, to be destroyed. But the second meaning is to change to turn into, change the essential form or nature of something. And then from the enhanced Strong's lexicon, this word is translated, um, turn is 57 times, overthrow 13 times, overturn 5, change 3. And the definitions go like this. First definition, to turn, overthrow, or overturn. The second definition, to turn, turn about, to turn over, or turn around. And then to turn oneself around. To change oneself. So I got to thinking, could it be possible that the prophecy of Jonah meant more than just physical destruction? Was God actually, through this prophecy, in his loving heart, moving to reach the people of Nineveh to get them to turn over their hearts? That's not what Jonah thought. Of course it's not what Jonah thought. He was a bigot. (laughs) He was a racist. Absolutely. Why do you think God chose Jonah for this mission? Because he didn't want something. I mean, I, I got to tell you, God has foreknowledge. He knows all our hearts. Jonah was the perfect person for this mission. Why? Because Jonah hated Nineveh, hated those people. He wanted them to die. And God's going to give him a message of an opportunity to, to repent. There is no way. So he heads off into the sea. Now, he gets tossed into the sea, and what happens? The big fish comes and grabs him up. And, and what is the God of the Ninevites? Who, what God do they worship? Dagon. Dagon, the fish god. And so these people from Nineveh are out there fishing one day, and here comes this big old fish and barfs up Jonah on the, on the land. Okay? You think they're going to listen to what Jonah has to say. He's a prophet from, the fish He's a prophet from God. Come on, our, our God just coughed him up for us. Okay? I think God knew exactly what he was doing in choosing Jonah. He was the man for his time. So... Yeah, and I think that God did love the people of Nineveh, and I think he wanted to reach them. In closing today, I wanted to share with you what was mentioned by Wendell a moment ago in Thursday's lesson, where it talks about, by their fruits you will know them. Test them by their fruits. And I want to share with you a couple studies that have come out. In 2005, 
Dyslin and Thomason published a study that documented that extrinsic religiosity, adherence to the rules, was significant predictor of childhood abuse. People who are extrinsically religious, rules-oriented, dictatorial, uh, keep, you know, the, increased the likelihood of childhood abuse. Whereas intrinsic religiosity, a spirituality internally to the person, decreased the likelihood of childhood abuse. Weber and Cummings in 2003 showed that physical abuse had a negative relationship with spiritual development. As a person developed spiritually, physical abuse went down, but not with religiosity. Religiosity went up, physical abuse did not go down. And then, in 1996, a study of 596 hospitalized elderly patients found that those who believed in a punishing, punitive, severe God had a significant increased rate of death in the next two years than those who believed in a gracious and loving God. Your likelihood of dying was higher if you believed in a punishing God. Now, I can explain to you why that is. Because if you believe in a punishing God, it incites anxiety. It incites fear. It fires a portion of your brain called the amygdala, which causes the sympathetic nervous system to be activated, which activates macrophages, which then, in turn, activates cytokines, inflammatory factors, which react upon the brain and body, causing insulin resistance, increasing risk of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, reacts back upon the brain, turning off certain genes that result in increasing risk of depressions, neuronal loss, hippocampal loss, white cell damage to the brain, all this stuff happening from believing in a punitive and punishing God. That was just the real quick overview. <laughs> when you said it decreases or increases childhood abuse, were you talking about that intrinsic or extrinsic producing childhood, childhood abuse or as a result of childhood abuse? No, 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 no. I'm talking about in families where the parents are very extrinsically religious, they are more likely to abuse their kids. And the reason for that is, what happens when there's abuse going on, their conscience convicts of guilt. And when the conscience convicts of guilt, we have to get rid of that guilt. And what do we do? We go through some hyper-religious dogma to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We are so good. We are so righteous. Okay? To offset the guilt that our conscience is bearing in on us for the abuse that we're doing to our family. Whereas intrinsic religiosity, a, a spiritual development, becoming more like Christ, reduces the likelihood of abuse in a family. Let's close our prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that, that you would pour your spirit upon us, that our minds can be open to see the true message that you have sent through all your prophets throughout history, the truth about you, that you are exactly as Jesus has revealed you to be, that you have always been our friend, that you are gracious and loving, and that you only want to heal us, and there's no reason for us to be afraid of you, that we should fear everything that would keep us away from you. We ask that you'll break the barriers down in our mind and our understanding that we can come back into a, a knowledge of you and we can take that knowledge, sharing it with this world, winning people back to friendship with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.